1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast. 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Scott Clemens about one of the great printers and designers of all time. This is an individual who not only put great uh, literature into print for the first time, But did so in a format that made literature portable for the first time. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: In Manhattan, in the Silk Stocking District, a few blocks east of Central Park, there's an unassuming five story brick building that belongs to an exclusive private club. This club is entirely dedicated to books, specifically to the art and craft of book production. The president of the Grolier Club, as it's called, is Scott Clemens. This is not his day job. During business hours, Scott Clemens is the chief investment strategist for Brown Brothers Harriman. He joins me today to talk about his life and the fascinating history of books and design. Scott, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you, Debbie. That's a combination of my favorite topics, so it's delightful to be here.
0: You were born and raised in Florida and graduated magna cum laude at Princeton University with a major in classics. How does a person with that background end up working at Brown Brothers Harriman, one of the toniest (laughs) and most successful financial organizations in the world?
1: Well, when I was a senior in college, majoring in classics, having taken a few courses in economics, but I think two, grand total of two, I applied to a number of Wall Street firms with the idea that doing something in international finance would be interesting. I was interested in international trends. Classics was just international trends of an ancient era. And I was very fortunate to find a firm that appreciated the liberal arts for what they are as an instruction in critical thinking, an instruction in communication. And I was fortunate enough to find a firm that would rather find someone who knew how to think than knew what to think. There's plenty of that out there. Knowing how to think is a far rarer talent, and it's why the liberal arts are important if I may be allowed a little bit of a soapbox up front.
0: Oh, absolutely. I know that um, I recently interviewed Michael Beirut, and he's a very strong proponent of the notion of getting as wide a range of education as possible for any designer, any creative thinker, because you need to pull from so many different disciplines in order to be able to know what you're doing.
1: Right. Well, I mean, we know that diverse teams of people make better decisions and they make quicker decisions and firms that put that into practice, whether they're design firms or financial firms, I think have a competitive advantage over the competition.
0: What gave you the sense that Brown Brothers Harriman was a firm that would be of interest to you?
1: Debbie, I think there's something in my DNA that likes old things. You think about – I collect 500-year-old books. Uh, My my wife and I live in upstate Connecticut in a 250-year-old home. What I found appealing about Brown Brothers Harriman is that it's a firm that's been around for almost 200 years. It was a private partnership at its creation in 1818, and it's a private partnership today that used to be very common on Wall Street. Every firm on Wall Street used to be a partnership, and one by one, they went either limited liability or they went public. The last one left is Brown Brothers Harriman. 180, 198 years old uh, this year, owned outright by 38 general partners of the firm who carry joint and several unlimited liability for the operations of the business.
0: What does that mean?
1: That means that unlike a Lehman Brothers or unlike a firm in 2008 that went under where shareholders lost all their capital and, yes, executives lost their jobs, partners of a general partnership lose their homes.
0: Okay, so that makes sense then in terms of one of the things that I wanted to ask you about the firm. It weathered storms ranging from the Panic of 1857 to the Great Depression, and the bank emerged largely unscathed from the credit crisis in 2008-2009. Because you had your own homes on the line, you're a lot more responsible and careful with other people's
1: money. Tends to focus the mind.
0: I want to ask you a couple more questions about finance, and then I think I might have a very elegant segue into (laughs) what you are really here to talk about, which is, which is books. You were appointed chief investment strategist at BBH in 2010. Mm-hmm. So what does that actually mean? What do you do as a chief investment strategist?
1: It's a great sounding title that can cover a lot of It's fantastic. Very sexy. Very <laughs> sexy title. Um, I'm, I'm essentially the guy who's supposed to figure out what the hell is going on in the world and what to do about it. And how do you figure that out? I do it a day at a time. There are plenty of people on Wall Street whose jobs include the term analyst, which if you think about the derivation or the etymology of that word, it comes from a Greek word literally meaning to break things down. Analysts take and break things down into their constituent parts. I think of what I do as more of a synthesis, which is the antonym. I'm the guy who looks at all the little moving parts and pulls it all together and looks at very large trends, ultimately with the idea of the implications for investment policy and investment management.
0: So why do people collect things, Scott?
1: I have a sneaky suspicion that collectors are actually born. If you talk to people who collect things and ask them, how did you start? What did you first collect? Nine times out of ten, they'll tell you they started with baseball cards or stamps or coins. For me, it was pennies, seashells, whatever it is. I think book collectors are made. So that collecting instinct, which is nature collides with the nurture element of some aspect of life that becomes intellectually fascinating. And that's when the collection takes a turn into a specific area. I think collectors collect things because they like to take disparate parts— pull them together, impose a sense of order upon them, and understand from that order what the bigger picture is. And if that sounds suspiciously like the way I describe my professional job, that's not coincidental.
0: I agree. And I'm wondering if there is some philosophical foundation to that as well about trying to conquer our innate sense of emptiness.
1: The human species is a pattern-seeking species. We don't like chaos. we like our effects to have causes, and we'd like to agree with Albert Einstein that God does not actually play dice. And so I think that pattern-seeking uh, innate nature within us, you're right, is a way to enforce order on the world even if there isn't one, asking the question why in response to things to which there isn't an answer. As long as we get an answer that puts us at mental ease, we're happy with that. And so I I think there's an element of that in collecting. Again, whether it's stamps or coins or books or wine or Or automobiles. Facebook likes. Facebook likes. (laughs) Right, right.
0: But let's talk about books because they do feel like a very worthy thing to have. They feel like a very noble thing to collect, especially when they're books that are 500 years old. Mm -hmm. When did you start collecting books and why?
1: I was an undergraduate at Princeton in the classics department, loved Latin, loved Greek even more, and was fascinated by the transmission of texts which is how these texts moved from the manuscript era into the printed era, which is really important for the history of civilization because the manuscript era is very fragile. If you've seen The Name of the Rose or read The Name of the Rose, Umberto Eco, it's 15, twenty years old now. There's this scene at the very end of the film in which uh, our hero, the monk, played by Sean Connery, James Bond playing a monk, rescues these manuscripts from the library of a monastery that's on fire. That's not terribly out of the ordinary when you think about how manuscripts were under threat by fire, by pestilence, by vermin, by the monks themselves sometimes. It was easy to lose a work of literature forever, but by the time you print 300 or 500 copies of it, Well, guess what? You can't burn that many libraries. It's not guaranteed, but it's almost guaranteed that the text survives. So I was fascinated by the transmission of Greek texts in particular. How did Aristotle survive into the 20th and 21st century? That's a course of inquiry that leads very directly to Aldous Minutius, the printer whom I collect. He was the first individual to figure out how to print with Greek in movable type and apply that technology to the canon of Greek literature – And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to credit to him the survival of many of the Greek authors that we now know as the canon.
0: And and not just the survival, but also quite a bit of the accuracy. Because from what I understand, he read and analyzed many different versions in order to find, I guess, the official version.
1: It's well, maybe not an official version, but at least a better version. Right. He, he was the first to appreciate that if you looked at multiple manuscripts, maybe the truth lie not in any one of those manuscripts, but some combination of the three. So he was the first to really do textual editing in a sort of rudimentary 15th century sense of the word. He would send, for lack of a better word, scouts throughout Europe looking for manuscripts, and he would bring them back, and he would copy them, he would use them to print books with, and along the way would exercise judgment about what the right reading was. And not always just him, he would pull around him extraordinary teams of editors to help him do this, and not just Italians, not just Venetians, where he was printing. The Aldine Aristotle, which was a six-volume text of the corpus of Aristotle printed between 1495 and 1498, a whole host of editors on that, including two scholars from Oxford, who traveled from England to Venice to help him do this and then went back home to England. So it was a really sophisticated operation. Maybe it was a little bit of the businessman, the investor in me was fascinated by that as much as the humanist. But Aldous's role in preserving and transmitting this classical patrimony, Greek patrimony in particular, caught my eye as an undergraduate in college. I was very fortunate to be surrounded by a good library at Princeton, a good special collections, but also very good book people. The people, the human beings who took an interest in me as a young collector steered me in the right direction, introduced me to places like the Grolier Club, and made sure that that nascent interest in collecting was nurtured.
0: You are the president of the Grolier Club. In addition to all the other things that you're doing, you are <laughs> the president of this club. Can you describe the Grolier Club and what it does?
1: Sure. The club was founded in 1884. Originally as a club for collectors of rare books and manuscripts, it's evolved since then. So 132 years later, it's about 800 members, of which 250 roughly are here in the tri-state New York area. But the rest of them are scattered far and wide, including internationally. It's really – I think of it as the republic of books. We're the capital of the republic of books. And our members still include collectors like myself, but we also include book designers, binders, paper makers, paper designers, curators, librarians in the special collections area. And the common interest is uh, a passion for and interest in not only books but works on paper. So we have collectors and curators of maps. Just over the weekend, I was in Boston visiting one of our members who collects decorated papers, and in his basement, there are 18,000 images of marbled papers and printed papers going all the way back to the ninth century. So it's a strange place in that regard, but a delightful place as well. Importantly, and I think uniquely, I'm not aware of any other club that is also a 501c3 organization. So although we are a private club, our clubhouse on East 60th Street is open to the public, Between 10 and 5, Monday through Saturday, there's always an exhibition in the main gallery on the main floor, and there's a smaller exhibition gallery upstairs. The library collections are rich in the history of the book, the history of the book trade, the history of the book arts, and it's open by appointment to researchers as well. So there's a very outward-bound philanthropic mission at the heart of the club as well as it being a private fellowship.
0: According to the Gurlier website, on the evening of January twenty third, 1884, New York printing press manufacturer and book collector Robert Ho invited to his home eight fellow bibliophiles to discuss the formation of a club devoted to the book arts. Although the nine men differed in age, occupation, and social position, they shared the opinion that the arts of printing and typography in the late 19th century America were in need of reform. Why did they feel this way? What was going on?
1: I think maybe we've always felt that way. Um, <laughs> a lot of the founders of the club were people in the business. They were publishers. They were editors. But they were also book people at the same time. And I think they appreciated, as we still do today, the physical artifact of the book and the elegance of good design, be it typography or be it the layout of a page or be it a binding around a book. And it seems rather precocious in 1884 to worry about the future of the printed (laughs) book. It's
0: like, hey, guys, wait till you see what's coming. (laughs) Exactly.
1: We worry about it today. But I think they wanted to be sure that there was a way in which to honor what good design actually was and the way that good design helped to carry information. It wasn't just design for the sake of design, but design as a means to an end of making sure that communication took place very clearly and very elegantly.
0: You just described good design. That's the definition right, right, right there.
1: Right, right. It goes back to Aldous. I think Aldous was a good designer. When you look at the way he designed pages and typography, there was an aesthetic intent behind that. And as was true in 1495 when Aldous began printing, was true in 1884 when the founders of the Grolier Club came together, and is true in 2015.
0: Aldous was born in the Papal States in 1452. He trained as a humanist scholar. He also worked as a tutor in aristocratic households before taking up printing in the 1490s and starting his press in 1494. What was the motivation in his starting the press in the first
1: place? It in some ways makes no sense.
0: Alive. <laughs>
1: Alive. In 1490, when Aldous moved to Venice, he was roughly 40 years old, which in the day was getting on in age. He was a scholar, humanist, had a really comfortable life, being the tutor to the young princes of Carpi, Alberto and Leonello Pio. Had plenty of time to write, correspond with his scholarly circle. Never worried about where his next meal was coming from. Printing was a cutthroat. Industry. The cost of capital were enormous. The cost of buying the presses, buying the paper, creating the type. Remember, this is the era of movable type type, expense of design, and Aldous had a type designer. There's the expense of the tin, the lead, and the antimony, the raw materials for it. And by the way, this was a period before there was any real concept of intellectual property. So if you sunk a lot of money into printing a book and you had an unscrupulous pressman, he could run off with an advanced copy of the book, walk across town, and knock out a quick edition, and you had very little recourse to it.
0: That was actually a big problem for Aldous, the counterfeiters. It was
1: huge, huge, which is the sincerest form of flattery, was that everyone wanted a copy, and particularly the the French. Uh, well,
0: there's no difference now, really, with people downloading
1: copies. It's on... as old as humanity. Yeah, Right, intellectual exactly. property theft. So on one hand, it makes no sense, and you have to conclude that it was a midlife crisis or something along those lines. But when you read the prefaces that Aldous wrote for his books and the correspondence of the day, it becomes very clear very quickly that he simply viewed this new technology of printing as nothing more than a technology that he could apply to his craft of teaching and therefore expand his classroom beyond his two young charges. Writing in 1508, Erasmus who lived with Aldous for about nine months. Can you imagine those dinner conversations?
0: Oh, God, yes. Erasmus <laughs> said,
1: you know, all this is really doing is creating a library without walls. What an evocative image. This is an individual who not only put great literature into print for the first time, but did so in a format that made literature portable for the first time. Prior to the invention in 1501, of the octavo-sized book, sort of more of a four-by-six-inch book that you could carry around with you, you went to a book. You went to a library. You sat in the presence of a book or stood in the presence of a book. All this liberated the books from the walls. That octavo format allowed literature to travel. It really, for the first time in history, made reading a personal pursuit as opposed to an institutional pursuit. So I think the reason he went to Venice was he had this vision of how this new technology could be applied to the academic subject that he loved so much. And he was very successful at it. I might
0: butcher this term, but I believe that what he first created were
1: libelli portatiles? Libelli portatiles. (laughs) I butchered it. (laughs) Not bad. Um, Portable books. That was his own phrase for the books that he printed. He also used a Greek word, in caridion. The Greek word literally means to have within one's hands Think of the English word manual, the etymology of manus, to have in your hands, is the same kind of thing. In Caridian also had a a military connotation. It was a small handheld dagger. I think Aldous intended both connotations. I think he viewed these smaller books not only as handheld manuals, but as the individual private weapon of scholarship and academia.
0: Were they primarily paperback or were they hardcover?
1: They were neither Books in this era were published without a binding. How would the pages join together? They were sewed together. So the gatherings were sewed together with thread, but the book, as it left the Aldine Press, would not have had a cover on it. What you usually did was take it around the corner or even next door to a binder, a separate shop that would put on it usually a rough wrapper of vellum, calf skin, slightly thicker than the paper itself, which served the function of just holding the pages together and protecting them from the elements. If you were a collector or you were of slightly higher means, you could take it to a finer binder and say, put my family's arms on it or put the title on it or something of those uh, nature. But it's why when you look at the imprints of the 15th and 16th century, not just all this, but the book trade in general, books were published in sheets, sewn together, gatherings to be bound later. You sometimes find in the trade and in libraries copies of unbound sheets, books that have not had a binding for 500 years. They're very rare because, as you imagine, they are exposed to elements and don't survive. But the binding was a secondary step.
0: For Aldus, printing was an extension of teaching. Was his creation of these portable little books motivated by education or commerce?
1: Yes. (laughs) I think it was both. And, And I think Aldous gets a lot of credit for his humanistic contribution and deservedly so. So his contributions to typography, page design, editing, publication, publishing, any one of which would guarantee him a spot in the first echelon of the pantheon of printers. But I think he had a good business eye as well. So, yes, I think he thought to himself, if I can create and sell these books in a format that are easier to carry around, uh, the libelli portatiles, and that are inexpensive relative to the day, I will sell more books and make more money. So I think there was a commercial aspect to it. But at the same time, I think there was a humanist aspect to it as well. They don't necessarily have to compete. Technically speaking, he wasn't the first to print books in that small octavo-sized format. But all the books that had been printed in that format before were things like books of hours or devotionals. They were religious books that were intended for personal interaction. And I think in 1501, when Aldus began applying this format to secular literature, Virgil was the first, he basically asked the question, why shouldn't you have a personal relationship with Virgil as well? Why can't I use this format for Virgil and for Horace and Homer and Sophocles and Euripides so that your interaction with them can be as personal and one-on-one as your interaction with the Book of Hours?
0: Interesting that the Grolier Club came at a time when the founding members felt that the book business and the typography business was in great need of reform, because I think this particular time in the 15th century, when Aldous was first doing this, has been described as a moment of upheaval in reading, roughly equivalent to our own digitally disrupted age now. Why was that happening at that time?
1: Well, there are paradigm shifts in communication. And if you want to go back to the very beginning, a very good place to start, we used to sit around the campfire and tell stories. For most of the existence of the species, that's how communication took place. And a first paradigm shift took place 7th, 8th century BC when people began writing things down. The next paradigm shift took place when instead of writing things down, they could print them. And then, of course, we're going through another paradigm shift now. And as you go back and look at those paradigm shifts, each shift does not obviate the previous method of communication. You and I are sitting here right now around a digital campfire talking. We still write things down by hand. We still print books, and yes, we use the electronic word now as well. Each paradigm shift, though, simply changes the way in which we do it. In the classical world, retors would memorize Homer, and they would go from town to town reciting the Iliad, a 24-book poem of enormous length.
0: can not you wish we had YouTube then?
1: No kidding. I mean, <laughs> They were essentially the, the equivalent of YouTube with ah. two legs. We don't, we don't do that right. anymore because Homer is in print. Uh, But we still talk around the campfire. We still write on stone even. We just do it in different ways and for different purposes. I think the founders of the Grolier Club would be amused but also pleased to see what I believe to be a resurgence, a renaissance in appreciation for the printed book. And I give the digital book credit for that. In what way? Because we've separated the medium from the message. So now if you want the message of a modern – fiction, you can get it on your iPad. You can read it electronically. The medium of the physical book is no longer necessary to read the text. And so that forces you or it allows you rather to look at the medium in a new way. We used to paint with oil on canvas because we wanted a picture of our ancestors on the wall. We don't need to do that anymore. And so all of a sudden now we have a different appreciation for what oil on canvas is, the artistry of it. And so I've seen a resurgence in artist books, in fine printing, the number of fine printers, people who still print with movable type in this city within 10 miles of where we sit tonight. There's an extraordinary flowering of that because we have in some ways liberated the book from the text itself, allowing us to look at it in new ways.
0: It's an interesting way of thinking about cultural evolution And if you think about the fact that we don't need to put oil paint on canvas and and draw our family members in order to have a picture of them on the wall, it does allow us to start to think about new ways to use that oil Mm -hmm. and and that canvas. And one of the really fascinating things about all this – was how many inventions he made along with Mm -hmm. the little portable books. He also was the first printer to use italic type. Mm -hmm. He was the first to use a semicolon. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about both (laughs) of these things. I could have a three-hour conversation with you about the semicolon, but I don't think we'll be able to do that, at least not at the moment. (laughs) Um, But I believe that italics were first intended to mimic the humanist handwriting of the day. I find this endlessly fascinating.
1: Fascinating. It's a common thread of a lot of his typographical developments. And it started with the Greek. So when he began printing Greek in 1495, he used four different Greek types. They changed slightly over the, the, the course of his life. And each of his Greek types was modeled after cursive handwriting in Greek. And furthermore, not just Greek hand, but the hands of known Greeks. There for in, example, there are individually identifiable models for his Greek script. So the first two Greek scripts that he created were modeled in the handwriting of Emmanuel Rosotis, a very well-known Greek scholar of the day. The third, after a Cretan scholar named Marcus Musurus, his fourth Greek type was modeled after his own Greek handwriting. And there's a reason for that, and the reason is that in the Greek community, there was, for lack of a better characterization, brand value of who you were as a scholar, from whom you learned, and in turn, whom you taught. Social cachet. There's brand value yeah, in that. Yeah, there's some provenance there. The biggest competition for Aldus's Greek books were Greek manuscripts. That was the, the real competition. No one else was really printing in Greek. And so one of the ways in which Aldous made this newfangled technology look and feel familiar and trustworthy was he co-opted the design that had come before by intentionally borrowing, mimicking, copying, mirroring the way in which handwriting looked. And indeed, if you look at some very early Aldine imprints and you put them next to a manuscript, even to a trained eye, they can be a little bit difficult to tell apart. All he's doing is responding to the idea that we as a species do not like change, particularly technological change. And one of the ways in which you make that change seem more comfortable is you borrow from the previous tradition. It's why the camera on your iPhone clicks. We're still using it today. It's simply a way, a reminder, a subconscious reminder that this is very much like the old tradition and you can trust it. It's why when you go to the website of the New York Times, there's a masthead on the computer screen. In that font that we all instantly recognize is the New York Times and all the news that's fit to print whether you're actually printing it or not. These are subconscious reminders of how the new technology simply bars from the old. Aldous knew that. He had a keen understanding of human nature. And yes, the italics were the same way. That was very much mimicked on a cursory handwriting of the day, and it was intended to send that subtle signal of you can trust this. This is simply a manuscript made by machine.
0: Aldus first used italics for five words in a 1500 edition of The Letters of St. Catherine. Do you remember what five words were used?
1: Oh, I didn't know there was going to be a quiz. (laughs) On the... the, uh, uh, I couldn't find it in my research. In the first gathering of the book, there's a one full-page image of St. Catherine of Siena, and she's holding in one hand a heart and in the other hand a book. And within the book are inscribed the words, Jesu dolce, Jesu amore, sweet Jesus, my love Jesus. And in the heart is just the word, Jesu, Jesus. And the way that would have been done is that a wood block would have been cut, incised in wood, and little holes gouged out in the type, the movable type, set in the wood, in the little holes in the wood, and then printed. That was in December of 1500, the imprint of that book. And it was a trial and it was evidently successful because by April of 1501, four months later, Aldous printed the first book in italic type, the Virgil, Collected Works of Virgil. Which, by the way, was also the first book he printed in Octavo. It's an extraordinarily important book for both of those uh, reasons.
0: And do you have a copy of that book?
1: I do have a copy of that book. Where did you
0: find it? How did you find it?
1: That book I bought many, many years ago when I was living and working in London, which if you ever decide to be a rare book collector, find a way to go live in London because there are secondhand antiquarian used rare bookshops sort of around every corner.
0: Do you get a special sense of joy or satisfaction or fulfillment finding these types of treasures?
1: I think every collector feels the thrill of the chase and the thrill of acquisition. This past weekend was the Boston Antiquarian Book Fair, and I found a few things there, one of which I was aware of and was glad to finally find it, one of which I had never seen before. And what what
0: were these? What books were these?
1: These were later books printed by Aldous' son, We focus primarily on all this, but the economics of his press were so successful that the press lasted throughout the lifetime of his son and then his grandson – Venetian printing presses usually lasted about 18 months. Again, very cutthroat industry. The Aldine Press lasted for over 100 years. So he did a number of things right along the way. In the 1540s, his son printed some – it wasn't really a series but a collection of Italian plays. And they were meant to be used in the theater and and they were used in the theater and they were therefore used to death in the theater. Actors would write on them and rip them up. They're like scripts really. They're scripts. They're basically scripts. They're very small. Chapbooks almost. And uh, a dealer who really specializes in theater, not in early printed books, had these in his booth. So, yes, the thrill of the chase is is always there. There could be that one missing item in your collection just around the next (laughs) corner.
0: Let's talk about the semicolon. The semicolon, one of the most gorgeous marks in the history of our species as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. How and why did Aldous create the semicolon?
1: Aldous was a perfectionist. And... A big part of what he did in creating typography was to try to regularize conventions that were otherwise all over the map. It was particularly true in handwriting. One of the ways you could recognize handwriting is that different scribes use different punctuation to mean different things. This drove all this up the wall. So when he had the chance— It was inconsistent. It bothered him? Completely inconsistent. No, he, he wanted to impose order. order. On, yeah, Absolutely. And he was a perfectionist, probably pushed him into his grave. But he, he wanted to create this sort of order. And in the opening page of a little tiny book called uh, De Etna, written by Pietro Bembo, Ah, oh, bimbo. It, we'll come back to that, too. Yes. Um, in the very first page, Aldous needed a punctuation mark that was a little bit stronger than a comma, but not quite so strong as a full stop. And he just decided to use both. And he put a full stop over a comma, and the semicolon was born.
0: Do you have strong feelings about how often semicolons are
1: used? Too often, usually incorrectly. <laughs>
0: oh, so tell us about what. The, what, the, the, what is the, the absolute correct... Proper oh, use heavens. of oh, a Yeah, we could I'm talk about even, this for like hours. Could, we could yeah. debate that yes, for hours. Could. I
1: probably use them incorrectly myself, uh, but uh, Aldus used it a lot, having invented a punctuation mark. This is something of which one should be rightfully proud. You sort of want to <laughs> use <laughs> right. it. So if you if you read the Dayetna, it's <laughs> it's all over the place, which again is delightful. But um, you you've talked about the number of innovations that Aldous had. And in this same book that brought to life the semicolon as a regular punctuation mark, Aldus used a new Roman font. So not the cursive of the italic, not the Greek, but a Roman font. And Roman typography was reasonably well developed, so he gets no credit for inventing it. But he did refine it in a new font in this book that was so elegant. It looks so modern and clear when you look at it today that it's inspired typographers ever since. And so any type that you see that has the word Bembo in the title is a, um, a descendant of that type in that book. Bembo had nothing to do right. with it.
0: Right, if the book was by Bembo, the typography was created for that Correct. book and that was
1: named Bembo. Correct. Bembo just got lucky he to did have indeed. Had his book. For oh, Which yeah. he paid. It was a the book itself is almost trivial. Pietro Bembo took a trip to Mount Etna with his father. And came back and thought that was a lot of fun. I'd like to write that down for posterity. He called his friend Aldous and said, if I paid you, would you print this? So it was sort of
0: frivolous. It was almost a vanity project. It was
1: a vanity project. There's no question about it. It just seems to be a vanity project that's had lasting impacts on typography for 420 years, 520 years. Yeah,
0: 1496. It's incredible. Let's talk about – now I'm going to try to say this correctly. I don't want to butcher it too badly. Hypnerotomachia polupali.
1: Polipali. That's very close. That's very good. It's a mouthful, the Narotomachia polyphily.
0: Okay. Thank you. This is considered both the most beautiful and most unreadable book in the history of our species. Why
1: both? (laughs) True. True (laughs) on both counts. Uh, (laughs) Printed in 1499. It's anonymous, although the name of the author is cleverly hidden in an acrostic in the book itself. It's written in a curious amalgam of Latin and Italian. It's Pigeon Latin. Or so I think this is
0: where James Joyce got his idea for some of his there's, books, right? There's a
1: lot of similarity there. Yeah, there's a lot of similarity. The text itself is a fantastical text. There is actually an English translation that's now available that was printed maybe only 10 years ago, and it's pretty good. It's the sort of thing that you can make your way through it. If you know French and Spanish, then you can fake your way through Italian. It's that. You can read the book. The text itself, the title, Hypneurotomachia polyphily, is a completely made-up word that means something along the lines of the struggle of love in a dream by polyphilus. And polyphilus, our hero – goes in search of his lover, Polia, and as he goes through the search, he wanders through these fantastical landscapes and has these fantastical experiences, and he finally finds her in the end and all as well. So as you can imagine, you can read into this book anything you want to read into this book. It was Sigmund Freud's favorite book, perhaps for obvious reasons. You can read out of this book anything you want to. The book alone is extraordinary. What makes it more extraordinary is the illustrations. So rare for the time and rare for all this, there are woodcuts on almost every page. And the integration of those images with the type has no precursor. It's almost as if it sprang fully formed from the press it de novo. Books had been printed with a woodcut on one page and explanatory text on the other. All this merged them together. So it's really
0: the first graphic novel.
1: It's got an element of graphic novel to it. It's not just graphics, but the graphics tell part of the story. They are a carrier of the message in as much as the text is as well.
0: It sounds to me that this was also a major influence for Lauren Stern, for Tristram Shandy.
1: It's been a major influence on any number of things. I would say, yes, it was certainly for Renaissance designers, for Renaissance artists. The images within the book were inspirations and source material for later woodcuts, for later painters, would reach back to the Polyphily as inspiration for their design.
0: Now, I understand that the typeface used in the Polyphily was created by type designer Francesco Griffo of Bologna. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us any more about the typeface?
1: It's a Roman typeface. This is before Aldous invented italic type. So it's a Roman typeface, Francesco Griffo da Bologna was a type cutter who worked for Aldous. He was a designer in every sense of the word. He helped Aldous design the Greek types and the italic type. And as a matter of fact, in the 1501 Virgil, the first book printed in italics, on the verso of the title page, there is a three-line encomium to Francesco Griffo from Aldous, praising him for his contribution to the world of letters through the design of this type. It remains a mystery how much of the design was actually Francesco Griffo and how much was Aldous And you can imagine them working together on it because, again, as a perfectionist, Aldous had very defined understandings of what should be and and, and how it should be. The relationship ended acrimoniously. We know after about 1503, Francesco Griffo said, these are my types. And Alda said, technically, they're my types.
0: Work for hire, Work sir. for hire, exactly.
1: <laughs> and Francesco stomped off outside of the reach of the Venetian Republic and began printing books on his own using his types. Again, beyond the reach of the Venetian Senate making him stop. Uh, we do know that not too many years after that, he got into a fight with his son-in-law. He killed his son-in-law and the name Francesco Griffo is not recorded again in history. So whether he went underground or was captured by the authorities and put to execution, we do not know.
0: Scott, Aldous sometimes printed books on blue paper. Why is that? In
1: 1514, really just in that one year, really just in one half of that one year, Aldous did print some books on blue paper. He also printed books on vellum, entire books on calfskin. And it's evidence of a market for Aldine imprints As works of art, as collectibles, because the best we can tell, an Aldine printed on blue paper, the price would have been up to 20 times more than an Aldine printed on white paper. What's the difference? I mean it's the same imprint. It's the same text. It's the same design just on blue paper instead of white. Well, the difference is that there were people who were collecting these books even as they were coming off the press and wanted that special copy. They wanted a copy printed on vellum. They wanted a copy printed on blue paper.
0: It's a limited edition.
1: It's a limited edition, a special edition. And um, Aldous would often print them as gifts to his patron, but they would trade in the marketplace as well. And uh, they're extremely rare. In the exhibition that we did at the Groyer Club, not to understate the rarity of this, but we had eight or nine copies of Aldine's printed on vellum. There were two we had that were printed on blue paper they're extremely rare. But it's evidence that even in the early 16th century, people were collecting these books as physical artifacts, not just as carriers of a text.
0: Let's talk about Aldus's printer's mark. The exhibit included 20 portable books bearing the mark, which was a dolphin curled around an anchor. And this same colophon is being used today by DoubleDay. Mm-hmm. What is the connection between Aldous's press and Doubleday?
1: Well, Doubleday is consciously adopting the brand value, the quality, the elegance of design that Aldous was known for. So there was no copyright on that mark. No, no. uh, There's an
0: irony to this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there is. There's a big irony to this. Uh, uh, Aldous himself – well, Erasmus tells the story uh, in 1508. He tells the story in a book that Aldous printed for him where he relates that in about the year 1500, one of Aldus's friends, Pietro Bembo, whom we have already met, presented to Aldous a coin, a very small, dime-sized denarius, minted in Rome under the reign of the emperor Titus in 70 AD. And the obverse of the coin is the image of the emperor as it always was, and the reverse is the dolphin and anchor. And Bembo said to Aldous, this seems to me to summarize the twin aims of your press, The dolphin symbolizing speed of production, but the anchor symbolizing stability of purpose. And he applied to that the Latin phrase, fastina lente, make haste slowly. And Aldous evidently thought it was a good idea because starting in 1502, every imprint of the Aldine Press bore some variation of that dolphin and anchor. And it's become iconic. I mean, it's an iconic mark of excellence and elegance. And I think for that reason, Doubleday, I'm sure Doubleday has a copyright on it now, but Doubleday has used it. Pickering and Chateau used it in the 19th century. Various printers over the years have adopted some form of that as their own mark.
0: Would it be fair to say then it was the first book logo?
1: No. Earlier printers had marks that were either on the title page of the book or more often than not the colophon, the last page of the book, which in the early printed era would record who made the book, when it was printed – And have a direction to the binder. Remember, again, these books all left the press without bindings on them. So there would be a direction to the binder, which basically was, please put this book together in the following order, (laughs) lest it get messed up. So no, Aldous was not the first to have a printer's mark, but it certainly is the printer's mark that's garnered the most resonance.
0: If all that you're doing wasn't enough with your day job at Brown Brothers Harriman and your presidency of the Grollier Club, you're also the chairman of the Research Corporation for Science Advancement, the oldest foundation in the United States dedicated to basic scientific research. How did you get involved with that? And what does it mean by basic scientific research as opposed to highfalutin scientific <laughs> research?
1: You, you have done your homework, Debbie. I'm very impressed. This is a foundation that was created a little over 100 years ago by a man, a scientist named Frederick Cottrell. And Frederick Cottrell died without any heirs. And he left a portfolio of patents to a foundation with the following directive. And the directive the foundation was embodied in about three sentences in one paragraph. And it was bet on risky research because that's where the good ideas come from. And, and I quote from his letter because I love the phraseology – bet on the youngsters. That was his quote. Very nice. And to this day in the 21st century, what we've identified is that scientific funding has a pretty predictable pattern. When you are an undergraduate, a graduate, a doctoral student, funding is, I don't want to overstate this, but relatively easy because you're part of Alma Mater, the institution itself supports you. When you have begun to achieve things of your own and you have your own lab and your own discoveries and your own patents and your own research, then there's plenty of funding as well. The National Science Foundation, federal grants, etc. But in between those two, there's a gap. When you have graduated, you have all the degrees you're ever going to get, but you don't really have anything to your name. That's when funding is hard to get. And that's where the research corporation steps in. It is in a sense venture capital except we don't make an investment return on it. We're simply putting money out there to people who are young, unproven, untested, a little crazy, and that's why we love them. And so it's high venture risk, high reward. <laughs> it's high risk, high reward. That's exactly right. One of the things that we particularly focus on is interdisciplinary work. What can physicists learn from biologists? What can astronomers learn from biologists? And so we support and we underwrite and we give grants to a lot of interdisciplinary research. Partially in recognition of the fact that the academic world today has become increasingly siloed. The tenure track requires you to become an increasingly deep expert in a field of knowledge that you and six other people care about. But the history of humankind, which goes back to my other avocation, how does knowledge progress, is always interdisciplinary. Always interdisciplinary, and yet the field of science has moved in the opposite direction. So, we, with our little resources, are trying to turn that towards more interdisciplinary work.
0: Scott Clemens, thank you for all you do helping to further the knowledge and the education of people everywhere now.
1: Thank you for the privilege of letting me talk about it.
0: Scott Clemens is the chief investment strategist for Brown Brothers Harriman. You can find out about public exhibits at the Grolier Club, where he is president, on their website, grolierclub.org. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.